That was that was that game last night. That was basically I hope to see the Stanley Cup final. And even if the Oilers lose against the Bruins in the finals, I'm happy with that. Those are my two favorite teams. I love them both. And that was such an intense game. And you know, the other game too, where the Oilers lost three two, that was also a very close, very intense game. Obviously, Connor was the guy who scored the two goals in that game, and uh, the Bruins did well to keep him in check. They did, uh, but as as some of the uh, post game uh, folks were actually already talking about, is that wait until it's tomorrow when it's hockey night in Canada, and McDavid gets the first time he gets to play almost in, in front of a, a home crowd in in years, and and you know mm-hmm. the Maple Leafs aren't aren't no you know shrinking violet either. You know they try to beef up a trade deadline too right and if i if i recall correctly he's from richmond hill so you know close enough and he's going to certainly have a lot of people and all the other uh you know uh folks on the Oilers who may be from ontario themselves as well right but uh it's an early yep. game for us uh, out in the west uh, but uh yeah Hi, you're listening to the Justin Musings podcast with Justin Lee and Marcus Muse. We are two advisors with CG Wealth Management in Alberta who finish off our weeks connecting over Zoom to discuss the week that was. So what's on the agenda this week, Justin? Well, there's been some developments uh, in the past week in regards to a regional bank in the United States. And uh, we'll talk about that and, and the kind of a little bit of the high level overview of what's happened and, and, and some of the implications of other uh, banks and, and, and those in Canada as well. In addition to that, there's been some information that came out in regards to mortgages in Canada and uh, talk a little bit about the numbers behind the types of mortgages uh, that exist out there, particularly the amortizations and the interest payments and how that's affected uh, uh, borrowers uh, in this uh, raising uh, interest environment. So yeah, it is um, Friday, March 10th as we're recording this. We've uh, generally tried to kind of stick to less uh, less time-sensitive topics. Uh, I, th- I thought I'd touch a little bit about what's going on right now in the news, uh, what's really sort of sending the markets into a tizzy today and over the last couple of days. Um, figure this, this podcast episode will publish sometime next week. It uh, probably will still be in the news or things will change immensely by then. Uh, what's, what was really interesting, so what I'm talking about here is uh, Silicon Valley Bank, so, like a little bit of background about who they are. So, this is a bank that's been around since uh, the 1980s. Now, I'm going to credit uh, Wikipedia and their website for all the research I did on this. Um, so, they've been around for a long time. They provide, uh, they basically are a deposit bank for uh, sort of startup businesses in Silicon Valley. Uh, they do some financing for them as well. But what really caused them to, their stock price to really rise over the last couple of years for them to do really well is they just, uh, you know, we had a lot of uh, capital market activity in the tech space, the startup tech space. So a lot of, you know, a lot of money was, was basically minted and put into the, to the hands of, uh, of tech startup companies. And they deposited that money at Silicon Valley Bank. So Silicon Valley Bank had tons and tons of deposits. Uh, some of it got lent out. Some of their business they do is uh, sort of small loans, mezzanine financing, stuff like that to these uh, to these startups. Um, but because they they took in so much cash all the time, and it seemed like that would go on forever, they put some of that money into ten-year bonds. Which uh, <laughs> you know, traditionally in the financial planning sense, you'd think of bonds as a pretty safe investment. But mm-hmm. we saw that was not the case in the last year. 
There was, of course, uh, we all experienced it pretty much if we had some bonds in our portfolio. The rise in interest rates uh, brought on by the Fed early last year and throughout last year caused the value of bonds to go down. So if you're in a portfolio where you have uh, maybe a balanced fund and you've got 40% in bonds, your 40% bonds went down by, you know, probably in the order of 10 to 15% last year. Mm-hmm. As an individual investor, yeah, that stings. Now, think of it this way. You've got uh, $20 billion of depositors' money, and over the last number of years, you A, you always kept getting new money coming in, so that money that was already on deposit, you didn't have to think about needing that to go out the door right away. Basically, you thought you had that money for 10 years or more, and in the past, bond rates kept going down, and so you not only collected the coupon, and you collected a bit of a capital gain. Um, now, I'm only guessing at, as to how the, the people at this bank were thinking. In hindsight, it all looks, it looks pretty stupid what they, what they were doing with this money, because obviously if this is uh, client deposit money and those clients can call on those deposits, you don't put them into 10-year bonds. But you kind of expected maybe through, uh, you know, just based on what was going on the last couple of years, there's just more money going to roll in. So the new money rolling in can go out to the clients that they ever drew on it. But what's also happened in the last year, we've had this uh, pretty much an implosion of tech stocks. We've had a complete drying up of financing in the tech sector. And uh, as a result, a lot of these bank accounts started to run dry. And these, uh, these companies were starting to draw that money out. Uh, they needed it to pay their expenses and whatnot. And uh, there was no new money coming in. Now, I've talked about bonds before, I think, on this podcast. I know I have in my newsletter. If you, if you own those 10-year bonds for 10 years, you're probably going to be okay. But if you're suddenly forced to sell those bonds after they've gone down 10% or more, uh, that's not a good position to be in. So yeah, what's happened now, most recently, yesterday, Thursday, they were going to come to the market to try to raise some money to uh, to offset their $2 billion roughly loss. I think $1.8 billion. Did you, did you read that, Justin? That's the magnitude that I saw, yes. Yep. Um, and the market was like, oh, no, you don't. <laughs> so... Well, what hap- I mean, what's kind of ha- causing a little bit of contagion, too, is Silicon Valley Bank being a small regional bank is the biggest holding of a major ETF that holds small regional, regional banks in the U.S., and it was down a lot yesterday, so a lot of people are jumping out of that fund, and by doing that, it's forcing the, the ETF to sell all the other regional banks, that are which also may or may not ETF. have problems. Yes. Yeah, so... That's been, uh, yeah, that's kind of what's been causing a lot of this. This has so now been deemed the largest uh, bank failure since the great, uh, great financial crisis. That's the latest headline. And the FDIC, that's the uh, American version of CDIC, is now sort of stepping in. They're taking control of the bank, trying to, uh, I guess, protect the depositors. So we'll see what happens. So there's a couple of things that come to my mind when you when you talk about that example. And And first of all, you know, banks are not infallible, right? I mean, we're in Canada. The banks in Canada, certainly the biggest banks, uh, are generally considered well-run, good stewards of And by of the capital. way, all the Canadian banks are down quite a bit today. They are <laughs> in sentiment, right? Uh, actually, yeah. a, a colleague mentioned to me that uh, uh, the lar- second largest uh, bank in Canada is actually down 10%, I think, in the last four weeks, right? This is, you know, again, yeah. one of the largest companies in Canada. And I'll say it, it's TD Bank, right? But like, oh, they're all down. They are all down in sentiment. Uh, and so the banks are not infallible, right? Maybe, you know, we, we've seen it maybe once in a generation, once in a couple of decades where you might see a smaller one uh, that has issues such as this. But it's possible. We, we heard about in other countries too. Lebanon comes immediately to mind where mm-hmm. people just simply lose faith 
in the institution that they do their banking in. And so that bank run, as they call it, when you lose faith in people, the depositors start wanting to take their money back out of, out of the uh, out of their accounts and maybe put it underneath their mattress or put it at another institution, right? And, then and that's that, part two of the story is yeah. that's what's happening today or what's been happening yesterday and today is those depositors are also getting scared and taking all their money out. That just makes the problem worse. Even worse. And then it just makes a snowball effect, right? And and what might have been a small problem at first, but that loss of confidence. I mean, home capital is an example that came to my mind, uh, um, you know, in mm-hmm. Canada as well uh, a number of years ago uh, before... Um, Warren Buffett came in to kind of bail him out in, in that sense too, right? But you know, Silicon Valley Bank or SVB, it's it, you know, it's it's a reasonably it was a reasonably sized institution. I mean, if I think about it in Alberta, Canadian yep. Western Bank, ATB, you know, or you know, financial institutions that are focused or are highly concentrated in one particular geography and or one particular sector, right? I, I, I hold yep. no surprises that uh, those two Canadian banks that I mentioned would have a fairly significant presence in the Alberta economy. And we've talked about what the Alberta economy is concentrated in. So, you know, call it SVB light, right? But if there was all of a sudden a, a prolonged run um, or a loss of confidence in, say, the energy sector, I would suspect that Canadian Western or even ATB, even though it's, you know, backed by, it's, you know, backed by the province, yep. they would have experience a, a very similar situation. So well, that, that very yes. thing actually happened in yeah. 2020, just in uh, Canadian Western Bank uh, and also in 2016. I mean, Canadian Western Bank at its peak in 2021 was worth uh, almost $4 billion. Uh, and just as recently as March of 2020, it was down to about $1.3 And that was, again, um, you know, what's happening to Silicon Valley now is obviously happening to energy, the energy sector at that time. Yep. Uh, also, just put the into perspective some of these numbers. You know, we talk about Canadian Western Bank. You know, two, three, four billion—not small potatoes, but also not really huge. Uh, home Capital Group market cap right now, and they're near their highs. They're they're at one and a half billion dollars. SVB, that's Silicon Valley Bank, at its peak in 2021 was worth about 44 billion dollars. Today, it's worth 2.3 mm-hmm. after the uh, the halt trade. So it really is probably worth nothing, but uh, the halt trade price. $39.27 brings it to a $2.3 billion market cap. So this is pretty massive. This is the equivalent of a, uh, it's almost like a CIBC going under. Well, it converted to Canadian dollars, yeah. It would be, It yeah. is like a CIBC <laughs> going under over a period of a couple of weeks. Yeah. So so quite the, uh, quite the, and it happens, when it happens, as I said, with a snowball, it tends to happen mm-hmm. very quickly after, once the momentum starts uh, getting that terminal, terminal rate. Uh, one thing also that I, I thought about, and you, you mentioned how, they had taken some deposits and they parked it into what would be considered a relatively safe investment, a 10-year bond. It's not 40 years, it's not 30 years, it's not, but it's not, either, and it's not one year, 30, 30 months either, right? So um, mm-hmm. I wonder uh, what your thoughts are on terms of matching the timeline of your assets versus your liabilities uh, and, and how we as individuals may try to avoid uh, a similar situation where you lock up something for 10 years and then realize, oh, you know what, I probably might want to access that next year or two years from now, right? Absolutely. And, you know, I did a little sort of a thought exercise in one of my newsletters just a week or two ago, and it had to do with a really interesting article I read in a Vanguard, uh, kind of a market update from Vanguard, talking about bonds and uh, talking about sort of uh, how with rates having gone up, yes, bond values have gone down, but the interest rate on those, the yield on those bonds has gone up. 
So now you're collecting more yield as you go until the maturity. So you kind of see a U-shaped return. And really, over if you're invested longer than the average term of the bonds or the duration, those are different numbers, but sometimes they're fairly similar. Um, if you're invested longer, you're actually better off today, even if you take into account the loss you had last year in those bonds. So those 10-year bonds, if they were invested for 10 years, they'll be fine. They would be um, fine, yes. If you're in a bond fund that has an average 10-year to maturity, you know, if you're invested for 10 years, you're fine. Mm -hmm. um, and if you're invested for more than 10 years, you might even be better because if it's in a fund, it's going to reinvest at higher rates and so on and so on. But uh, they're, they're the problem, though, is I think, you know, it comes down to what we saw a lot of in the last couple of years, which is, you know, let's call it greed. Let's, or let's also call it a bit of complacency. So, and this is why we need these higher <coughs> rates that are, that, are, that are being implemented. We need basically ca to cause a higher cost of capital across the economy so that people make smarter, smarter decisions with their money. And when they make smarter decisions with their money, we get better outcomes. If, if the cost of capital is super low, people make dumb decisions, we get a, an economy that's, you know, that could have some sort of a um, systemic issue. Uh, in the case here, so what I suspect happened is, you know, the smart thing for a bank to do is you take deposits. If those are revolving liquid deposits, or they call them callable, or I forget the terminology and all that, if that money is needs to be available to go out the door again, you need to keep it in something liquid. So, you know, the money comes in on a deposit, they pay the deposit or a couple of interest, a couple percentage points in interest. They then need to put that money into something like T-bills, uh, like short-term T-bills, like less than a year, whatever so that they can earn some interest to pay the depositors interest and still have something very liquid that they can sell if the depositor wants all their money back. I think though, again, you know, years and years of them taking in so much more money than was going out the door and seeing this opportunity to, t to make a little bit more of a coupon on 10 years as well to the, the, see the stretch for yield. A, yep. Yeah. Stretch for yield as well as, um, you know, a move up in, in, in value. Mm -hmm. You know, it, it's not even that extreme. I mean, extreme would be if they took that money and put it into stocks. Yes. And, uh, you know, that, that that's something that a, a very badly managed bank could potentially do. Um, I don't know if there's any if there's any examples of that in the last decade or so. But um, what you yeah, could I mean, probably look at potentially is an equivalent base in a somewhat equivalent basis is insurance companies. So insurance companies, mm -hmm. uh, you know, is, uh, underwrite policies uh, for events that might happen years or decades down the road. So the premiums that they receive annually or monthly uh, on those uh, on those policies, they have they hold on to. It's a float, and then they choose to take that money and then invest it. And so uh, Berkshire Hathaway uh, is largely built mm -hmm. off of that. Firefax Financial in Canada, Manulife, all the life codes take those premiums that come in and then reinvest it to offset their liabilities and then some. They're very successful doing that because they know that that money is not going to be needed till way down the road. It's not a... It's a matching a of that liability, <laughs> exactly. That down, that, exactly. that expectation down the road, right? Yeah. Same thing, when a bank is financing mortgages at five years, that usually the other side of that is a five-year bond or a five-year GIC. I mean, technically, exactly. yes, banks can take, banks can take their liquid deposits um, and, and, and lend that out at a higher rate, but they take a bit of risk there. If those liquid deposits, that money wants to come back out, um, you know, the bank could, uh, they'd have, they might be scrambling for capital. Uh, that's why the banks, you know, they, they offer these different products, GICs, uh, they offer you more interest on a savings account than a checking account because they know that money's going to stick around longer. They also and, sometimes uh, try to, you know, 
uh, offer you, you know, zero annual fees or monthly fees if you maintain a certain balance in there, typically $5,000. Exactly. Yeah. That money is just basically sitting in a checking account doing yep. nothing, but it's free float for the for the banks to do their, their lending as well. Yes. I take, I take advantage of that fully with my bank. Actually, my bank uh, offers both a, like I, it's an either or. Um, I don't want to name the bank and I don't want to advertise for them, but they, uh, if you have over 5,000 in your checking account, you, you get your fees waived. Or if you have over 20,000 in a savings account and keep it in there, they waive your fees, which mm -hmm. is smart by them. They, they keep that money on deposit. And, uh, and yeah, that's, uh, but it makes a point. If they don't. They get yeah. uh, they get twenty five bucks from you. <laughs> That's right. So they're 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 getting some uh, return uh, in, in some form or the other, right? So generally, banks very very fairly reasonable, pretty pretty good business, right? Bring money in, lend it out again, capture that spread, that interest rate spread. Uh, but uh, in 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 these cases where you just again that that misalignment of of liability of of saying yes this is the depositor's money we will give it back and and uh, and locking it in at presumed what would have been an attractive rate but then seeing the impact of the valuation of it because of the interest rate increases it, it just made for uh, a very tough spot for SVB to to deal with so um, is there based off of this do you think that we should all be at all concerned about our deposits say you know at our Canadian finance financial institutions uh, because you said like the, the general sentiment is that one thing happens uh, to one particular operator which then causes mm -hmm. a bit of a sell-off in the entire sector and then which maybe causes questions I actually received a text message this this morning specifically about SVB and, and is there a concern about this in the underlying portfolio even though there's no deposits in that bank yeah I actually I did do a check anyways on my uh, my whole uh, my whole book of business see if that if that stock happens to pop up anywhere I mean yes. I would have never put anybody into it but uh, you know it might be in some someone's portfolio and luckily it's not but you know you have a good qu good question there you know what, what could this what could happen in on the Canadian side you know is there potential for massive contagion and we're gonna we're gonna learn a little bit in the next couple of days here see what the FDIC does in the US but I mean technically speaking what we saw in the great financial crisis when things got bad the government stepped in. They would uh, try to arrange another company to buy the the failing company, and then everybody was okay. Everybody was made whole. Mm -hmm. um, I think in Ireland was where there was a case where the government bought uh, a bank, or might even there might even have been some small regional banks in the U.S. that were just entirely bought, mm -hmm. um, and and the depositors got all their money. Uh, the FDIC, CDIC thing is really kind of a worst case, you know, scenario. If it happens to everybody at the same time, then the government's not going to be able to buy everybody, but then they guarantee for, or CDIC, you know, would guarantee for that 100K. That's right. But it'll be interesting to see, first of all, what, what actually happens, like what are, what, what happens to the depositors at, at FDIC? And, um, and then, yeah, what, what further contagion might happen? I guess we'll check it out. But yes, it's... Um, we'll see what happens. It, you know, and, and it's funny that you bring up um, GICs and mortgages and how banks, you know, sort of match that liability with that asset as well. Part of the reason why five-year GICs do exist is because there's five-year mortgages that exist. And I think mortgages was something that we wanted to talk about as well because that was a major uh, piece of information or piece of news that came up in the, in the last week or two uh, here in Canada based on some investigations and also uh, based on some uh, disclosure that, the, uh, that uh, some of the banks have done. Yeah. There's been some interesting things happening. Uh, what was the... What was the top of your mind about mar about mortgages 
Well, I, I would say that, well, the, the biggest piece of news that came in in March was that uh, CIBC came out and they mentioned that, you know, you know annual report and they're talking about their assets and their liabilities and such. But they actually mentioned that 20% of their residential mortgage portfolio, the money that they lend out for people to buy homes. So that's about 50, just over $50 billion worth. About 20% of it, oh, oh, sorry, the $50 billion, they were the, the borrowers, the people like you and I, they were in a situation where their monthly payments were actually not enough to pay the interest on the loan itself. Mm-hmm. And so mm-hmm. then the questions and the, you know, the questions started going and, and the wheels started churning and the people were wondering, what is it like at all the other banks? So in the situation where, you know, because the interest rates have gone up so much and because of the amortization calculations that's happening, that, that happens with it, the monthly payment, if it's not covering the actual interest for the term or for the period, guess what happens? It's called negative amortization. And what ends up <laughs> happening is that difference, the, the amount that isn't covered, gets tacked onto the mortgage itself. So if your mortgage payment was $1,000 a month and you, the actual, you know, the early years, the amortization, it's, you know, the payments is mostly interest, right? And so let's say that interest, that, that payment ended up being, oh, it's actually $1,100, but you're only paying 1000 So that difference of $100 gets tacked on to the, to the overall loan, and now you're borrowing and paying interest on top of that as well. But 20% of the CIBC's residential uh, lending is in that situation. Yeah, and I always wondered what would happen. Like we always, I used to work at the bank and I did mortgages and I went through all the documentation with people and, you know, we talked about the trigger trigger rate and mm-hmm. whatnot. It was always a theoretical thing. I never knew what would happen if that actually happened. So, yeah, I guess we know now. I mean, uh, ultimately, what else can the bank do? The bank, if the person can't afford it, they want to cause that person to go into uh, to default in some way. That's not... You know, that's not ideal. That's not in the interest um, of the bank, nor is it in the interest of the, per- all, the no. person who bought the house, right? That's absolutely yeah. not. And it, it might it might surprise a lot of Canadians to know that the bank doesn't really want to foreclose on your house. Um, that's a lot of trouble. There's legal costs and everything. In fact, um, as, as I understand it in Canada, they don't so much foreclose, but they use power of sale um, if there is a default. And I mean, it's, you know, it, it's also different here than in the U.S. where... In the U.S., apparently, allegedly, this is what I understand, you can just give the house to the bank, send them the keys. If you're underwater, now it belongs to the bank. Mm-hmm. Uh, here, you're, you know, you're foreclosed on, or not foreclosed, you're, 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 the power of sale is done. The bank forces the sale of your home, basically forces you out of your home, and uh, takes whatever proceeds it can, and then leaves you with the remainder of the debt. So a very different thing. Now, this thing with, with amortizations now, one thing that I had kind of thought of what's probably going to happen in the next couple of years with with the rise in fixed interest rates is when you think about all these people who got who got fixed rate mortgages at about 2% for massive mortgages for way overpriced property in Toronto or Vancouver, those mortgages, if they come due now, they were at 2%, they come due at 5 or 6%, whatever's left on those mortgages and what's our, whatever's left on the amortization, if, if they calculate that out, what the payments are to continue on the original amortization path, it probably becomes completely unaffordable to the mortgager. Mm-hmm. Or sorry, is it mortgagee? The borrower? Mortgage, uh, mortgagee, <laughs> I think. Uh, the bank is the mortgagee. Yeah. Yeah, correct me if I'm wrong in that. But uh, So 
what I knew was probably going to happen anyways is what always was was a, always an option when you refinance your mortgage. And it's really weird how we do things in Canada, really, if you think about it. In the States, you get a 30-year mortgage. You pay it off over 30 years. Here's your interest rate. Here, you get an amortization of 25 years usually. That's the, that's the usual conventional. It can go up to, I think, 30 or 35. We'll talk about that in a minute, if, yes. Yeah, so... Whatever that maximum is now, you can always, on the renewal of your mortgage, at the, on the renewal, you get a new term and a new interest rate. You can pick your term based on what rates are. You can go variable if you want. Uh, but you have the option. So the default is you stick with your original amortization, but you have the option of stretching your amortization back up to the maximum of whatever it originally was. Mm-hmm. And I remember back in the day, even when rates were low, people were doing that just to reduce their payments a bit so they'd have extra cash flow. Uh, just, you know, they start with a 25-year. At year yep. five, they've got 20 years left. Yep. Let's stretch it back to 25 and have a lower payment. Mm-hmm. So that's probably going to happen a lot. And I just wonder if it gets really, really bad and there's, you know, you know 6 or 7% mortgages and people, like, really having trouble with those payments, is the government going to come in and say, okay, now we're going to do 40-year amortizations. We're just going to stretch it out more? So the government, may, but certainly the lenders are going to have to consider that, and they've already actually have. So interesting you brought up that point, because I also pulled up some information otherwise, is, well, yes, historically, traditionally, 25-year amortizations was, was a typical standard mortgage. But now you're starting to see 30-year, 35-year, maybe soon to be even longer. And yes, your month-to-month cash flow expenditure or, you know, uh, to the mortgage may be uh, more manageable or lower, but the overall interest is going to be much higher. And, and there's, again, reasons why people may stretch it out. And we'll talk, we can talk about prepayment options and things to, to accelerate and not actually truly take the full 30 years or 25 years to, to pay it off, right? But... Uh, just uh, running down the list, uh, BMO, the percentage of mortgages that have 30 years or longer, they're at 33%, 32% of all their mortgages. At CIBC, it's 30%. At TD, 29%. At RBC, 25%. They're all, at least 25% of their mortgages have amortization periods of 30 years or longer. And um, just because of the disclosure actually allows it and I can see it, I'm just going to pick our CIBC because there's the one they're actually mentioning it, is that 27% of, those mor- of their mortgages is 35 years or longer, right? Think about that. Wow. People are signing up to um, have an interest rate schedule of 35, 40 years. And it's funny because I went online to kind of those online mortgage calculators to see, you know, options, try to simulate what your monthly payment will be. And most of them are, you know, they do 25, right? And they, they actually don't have an option to go past 30. But the lenders themselves, right? These are you know, like the, the banks themselves that provide some of these websites, right? They're providing 35 and 40 years, right? I mean, you talk to your mortgage uh, broker your, or your, uh, your, your mortgage contact, and they'll probably offer it if you ask, ask for it. Um, but it's, it's substantial, 35 or longer. Those must be CMHC insured though, right? I mean, yes, there's going to be uh, comments like that, right? But then even then, right? They're, gonna, they're not going to just unnecessarily stretch it out uh, uh, as, as a bank themselves. They're going to want to have some um, security. But then the CMHC, the CMHC insured mortgages are typically have a lower interest rate too, slightly lower because they know that they're backstopped by CMHC. 
right? So, um, so I don't have that breakdown of how much of it is is uh, not insured and how much it is insured, uh, but it's not 100% of them. I would I would imagine, right? That are insured. Maybe just a little background on what that is. CMHC insurance is um, how to describe. Basically, the banks offload the uh, the risk of a of a mortgage to uh, to CMHC. I guess uh, the borrower pays a premium for CMHC insurance when they when they get their mortgage. That premium is based on how little of a down payment they make. Uh, conventional mortgage is twenty percent down, and again, twenty five years unless that's changed. And and usually, if you have that twenty percent down, you're usually going to get uh, you know most lenders are going to you know jump jump after you try to get your business. Uh, if you have less, CMHC, sometimes people have 20% down, but the uh, property is less desirable. So the lender sometimes says, we will only do this if it's CMHC insured. But uh, because house prices have gone up so much in the last number of years, and because I, I'm guessing a lot of people didn't come up with a $200,000 down payment on a $1 million condo, uh, there's probably a lot of CMHC insured mortgages out there. And, uh, and ultimately, they're the ones, and they're kind of an arm of the government, as I understand it, mm-hmm. uh, the National Housing Association or something, they're the ones that sort of decide what will they do. Will they do 35-year amortizations, 40-year, they did once. Uh, it was a crazy thing they did back in 2007 just because, again, at that time, home prices were getting too high and they were becoming unaffordable. So what do they do? They come in and say, okay, you can do 40-year mortgages now. And that was in order to allow people to continue to buy houses you know, now the conundrum is what are they going to do so that people don't default on those houses they bought in 2021? It's going to be a challenge. I think so. Yeah. I mean, there's some thoughts as to why you might want to stretch it out. Like, oh, yeah, because of that month to month cash flow situation. And also, yes, a lot of them will offer, you know, 10, 15, 20 percent prepayment option where you can kind of catch up and, and do lump sums. If you think that at the end of this year, you're going to come into uh, an annual bonus or, or something of that nature, or you're going to get that job or, or, or an inheritance or something of that, you know, to that effect to kind of offset that that stretched or elongated amortization uh, uh, schedule. But it is, uh, you know, you take a step back and you think about it, you're basically committing to pay whatever percent interest on hundreds of thousands of dollars, if not almost a million in, in some places, right, for half your half your life, not just your adult life, half your entire life. And, and so it makes uh, it really, you know, it is, it is, this is the biggest purchase people make in their lives, the home, uh, if they, if they do purchase a home. And, and and the interest, the the cost of it, just just pushing it down, kicking it down into the future uh, at some point, so that the overall expense to you, while you may not feel it month to month, you're going to feel it over much longer uh, amount of time, which ultimately means it's it's more of an expense to uh, to the buyer, or to the to the borrower themselves, right? So. Right now, I have you know taking take a step back and think about debt. I do have a mortgage. There's probably more than ten, less than fifteen years left on it, uh, in, in in some form. Uh, and you know, I don't have any credit card debt. I pay that off uh, as, as timely as I can. Uh, I used to have student loans that I took uh, for university, and I paid that off quickly uh, after after school uh, when I started working. And I'm trying to think, you know, my occasional car loan and all that, right? But, you know, we, we loans, you know, debt itself isn't a bad thing. We wouldn't be able to buy a house, perhaps go to school, uh, buy a vehicle uh, without it, right? It can be a very useful tool, uh, but it can certainly be abused. And um, 
or, or just really, you know, stretching it out, it just may end up costing far more than what you and I, or what the borrower may initially have anticipated, right? So I don't know how much debt you might have or what types of debt you have right now, but, uh, you know, it's 30 years, 35 year, 40 year mortgages, uh, just amortization schedules, just, uh, you know, it, uh, it's, uh, it's a little unnerving to myself. Yeah, I mean, I've always been super debt averse and, and maybe that's my upbringing too. Um, you know, my parents bought uh, their first condo back in the late 1970s in Edmonton. Uh, probably also kind of caught up in elevated house prices at that time. And then, of course, interest rates skyrocketed. So I think they became pretty re- debt averse and mm-hmm. uh, sort of that got fed down to the kids. And, um, and yeah, I know uh, when we, uh, when uh, my family, they, we bought our house, uh, bought a bigger house in the late 1980s. Um, I know that mortgage was paid off fairly quickly in the years after. Uh, and of course, back then, I mean, a, a big house was, you know, less than what you pay for a condo today. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, uh, so yeah, myself, um, you know, the biggest thing I've always been very, very averse from, and I always uh, also try to impart this on my clients, uh, consumer debt, you should absolutely not have. There's no reason unless you, ha- unless you come into hard times or whatever, but like day-to-day living should not cost you more than what you take in an income. So why do so many people carry credit card balances, uh, overdraft balances? Or, or just consumer loans. And, th- and I really had my eyes opened up when I worked at the bank because, you know, just on what I was doing all these years, observing for my parents, none, this was all foreign to me. When I was at the bank call center for, uh, for a year, uh, when they had their call center here in Edmonton, I saw everybody's finances. You know, it was very, very uh, insightful. And, um, you know, you see people that have their accounts always in overdraft. And funny thing, sometimes they have their account in overdraft and they've still got an automatic transfer going into a savings account because someone set that up for them to try to get them, uh, you know, try to get them to save. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but, uh, you know, that or, you know, the credit card debt or these massive lines of credit moving money around, you know, mortgage debt is, is fine because nobody or very few of us have, you know, a half a million dollars sitting in our in our pocket to, uh, to buy a house, um, a car loan too, you know, you and these things are also, the nice thing is they're usually financed over an appropriate period of time. Your house, you know, theoretically, you could live in it for 30 years. Mm-hmm. The structure will probably probably survive a couple decades longer. So, you know, it's usually 25, 30-year mortgage. It's split up over that time period. Cars usually last, you know, between 5 and 10 years. And and those are that's what car loans are usually termed at. Uh, but, yeah, consumer debt, if you just keep piling on consumer debt, it, uh, you know, you're not going to get anywhere, and then that's going to stand in your way when it comes time to get a mortgage. People will blame the banks for getting people into debt, and maybe a little bit they're to blame because they put these products out there. But you just have to be smart and have to think for yourself. Like you cannot finance consumer costs month over month over month like that. What you're spending, you need to pay off. This is, I think, part of that. You talked about it earlier. Cheap, cheap money, right? Like when the banks or the VC companies or whomever, even individuals like you and I, uh, had access to interest rates that were in the low, low single digits, you know, sub yeah. 3%. It, it's almost as if the money was quote unquote free or without a lot of consequence. And now that the interest rates are six, seven, eight, nine, depending on the type of, uh, of uh, credit that you're using, 21% for a credit card, you know, 9% for a line of credit, 5% maybe for, for a, a mortgage, et cetera, et cetera. Now, hopefully, you know, uh, in general, this is, this is essentially why interest rates are going up. It's to make the economy, to make consumers pause 
to reconsider what they're spending this money on to refocus on essentials less on the nice to haves or the extraneous items or even just buy less of those things right a less value instead of stretching to buy that eight hundred thousand nine hundred thousand dollar home why don't you look at a five six one you know whatever stage you're, you're at instead of the the ninety thousand dollar hundred thousand dollar luxury vehicle take a look at that 30 mm -hmm. 40 50 60 maybe not 30 anymore right but essentially an entry-level one as opposed to the uh, the uh, the the luxer version with the leather seats and such so it, it you know it's it's slowly changing the housing the housing situation is the first place cars are the another place where you see an immediate mm -hmm. the fastest impact on that interest rate increase and then that consumer debt the things that were kind of a little bit more uh, under the radar uh, not less big ticket uh, those are starting to come into play now too and and to your point I um, I think that yeah, behaviors are starting to change right now that they realize that oh my mm -hmm. goodness look at my look at how much I owe every month right on on my credit card or my line things of that nature right and you know the thought went, <laughs> the thoughts went through my head like I, I bought a house in 2021 uh, I got one of those super low interest mortgages 1.79 percent over five years so Ooh. lucky me until 2026 at least so hopefully rates are down by then <laughs> but you know the thought went through my mind you know what the mortgage payment is could afford a bit more i should have gone for a little i should have paid a bit bit more for a bigger house but you know that was when i was thinking 1.79 percent was going to be around forever and yes. uh, uh money is basically free i also in the last you know at that time too i was thinking of getting a new car um and you know thinking um you know i'll be honest thinking like audi you know something uh you know up there in cost because the <laughs> the borrowing costs are next to nothing i wasn't thinking of you when i brought um, my example but go on <laughs> <laughs> I'll, I'll admit I'm pretty bad when it comes to cars, you know, buying a new one every five years, and I do like to drive a nice car. Uh, but, you know, that was because interest rates, you know, the money was free. Now, uh, like I haven't bought a car. I do probably need one soon, but I'm thinking now, you know, something cheaper, Toyota, and, um, and paying cash for it. Because uh, really, you look at the car loans now, they're 7-8%. So is anyone out there even thinking of getting a Lexus anymore or an Audi or whatever, like if they can't afford it outright? Uh, I think. I mean, Teslas, those are names that still come up. I know they've dropped prices too, but they're, they're sort of like the, uh, the, the, the signaling type names, right? Where uh, it, it's Well, the cars the are hard story. to find anyways. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, that's true. They're hard to find anyways, but, yeah. uh, and you know, that's an industry I would not want to be in at all at this point, or at least I wouldn't want to be a car dealership where... You know, you had everybody going gung-ho spending money in 2021, and you had no cars to sell them. Your lots were empty. Now, maybe in the next little while, there will be more supply coming in, but the borrowing costs are so high that, that you know, the, the ship has sailed in terms of people, you know, throngs of people wanting to buy cars, wanting to buy overly expensive cars. Um, and I talked about this in a past podcast about cash flow. That's the worst thing you can do is spend more money on a car than you need to or spend more money in a house than you need to. But uh, low borrowing costs uh, kind of compelled that. And that's exactly what I was saying earlier in, in terms of the economy. You know, when the cost of borrowing is low, people make dumb decisions with their money. As the cost goes higher, people make smarter decisions. That goes with businesses too. Let's say, um, I guess maybe if, if interest rates were higher several years ago and Silicon Valley Bank could get, you know, five, six percent on, uh, on treasury bills, short-term treasury bills, they might not be in the, in the mess they're in right now ties those two those two conversations together again so limit 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 the the extra spending uh match your liabilities with your with your uh, with your assets don't uh, don't stretch out uh expense or, or interest rate expenses longer than you I suppose you need to right 
But I'm surprised that you mentioned that you're going to buy the car uh, outright uh, in cash. I haven't looked myself uh, in a while, uh, but maybe the days of 0% financing for a domestic are long gone, uh, like I said, but uh, I, I haven't checked. So. Oh, no, they're, they're long gone. I yeah. mean, the way it is now, if you're looking to buy a car, I mean, first of all, yeah, good luck buying it. Good luck finding a car. The ones that everybody wants, nobody has. SUVs, pickup trucks. Um, that's pretty much it. The like return cars, of the regular hybrids, sedan. Things like that. Your average sedan, yeah, sure, you'll find your, you can find them. If you want a Toyota Corolla, you'll, you'll probably find it. If you want a RAV4, good luck. You know, fat chance. If you want a, hmm. or if you want a Tacoma or something like that. Um, yeah, you'll find your sedan. They'll do lower interest financing on the car that nobody wants. Mm -hmm. And, of course, it'll cost you more for the car that everybody wants. It's an interesting world now. It's not. Uh, it's definitely a seller's market, I guess, when it comes to the, when it comes to cars. Although, the poor, unfortunate seller, I'm sure, would like to sell a lot more of them, and uh, they're not getting them. Uh, they're not getting them in from the uh, suppliers, and that's why uh, used car prices are still pretty, pretty strong. You know, if uh, you're you're that uh, car dealership and there's nothing new coming in from the from the uh, the assembly line. Um, you're happy to take people's used cars and then, you know, flip them for a couple thousand dollars more. That's right. As we were talking about mortgages, and, you know, this is a very uh, salient topic because this is the time of year now in March, you know, March going on, April, May. Uh, this is that sort of seasonal time period when there's a lot of home buying and mortgaging going on. Absolutely. Uh, when I was at the bank, this was our money out campaign time. You know, as soon as that RSP campaign stopped, it was money out campaign. And uh, you just wanted to make sure, you know, the best mortgages offers, best mortgage offers were at the forefront. So people come to you to get those mortgages. Uh, one thing I, wanna, I would give uh, in terms of advice to anybody looking to buy a house, get a mortgage. Well, there's two things I would say. One is, can you really afford it? <laughs> and just because a bank or a mortgage broker tells you that you can afford it does not mean you can afford it. Um, but look, if you really can afford it and run the numbers at 5%. If you go to any bank website, they usually have a mortgage calculator and you can put in whatever interest rate you want. See if you can afford that that mortgage at 6%, 7%. Uh, like right now, they'll tell you 5% anyways. I think that's pretty much what, what the rates are going for. But back when they were at 2%, why were people not looking at that and saying, okay, yeah, 2%, uh, you know, five-year mortgage over 25 years, I can afford that. But can I afford it under 7%? You, that's what you should do. Look at that worst case scenario. This is where that this is where the mortgage stress test was you know was implemented and why it was implemented right it's you know it's implemented it's in the background and of course the the bank is making sure that you can afford it based on the numbers they input but that doesn't necessarily mean you can really afford it you know if you're living in Toronto and all your expenses have gone up and, and all this stuff your condo fees are going up and all that uh, you you probably can't actually afford it. Yeah, that's a good point because if you're stress testing or doing a scenario where your interest rate is going up, right, it, it probably makes sense to consider that every other expense that you have in your life that's not going into that mortgage calculator is yeah. also going up in price too. That, that, that's, a, well, that's a fair observation, yes. And what they're generally looking at with their debt service ratios is they're looking at the mortgage cost, all your other debt costs, they're looking at your condo fee if applicable, mm -hmm. your, and your heating. And I think that's it. And they're just making sure that that all fits within 40% or 32%. There's two different, mm -hmm. I don't remember all the details, but there's two different uh, ratios they look at. And yeah, so yeah, maybe it does. But is that other 60%, is it actually enough to cover all your other expenses? It might not be. 
So the, the other bit of advice I want to also offer is just, you know, if you're at a certain age and you're a certain stage of your career, early stage of your career, you you really shouldn't buy buy a place. Uh, you, you, if you probably can't afford it to begin with, even if you can, and if everyone's saying you've got to buy real estate, and if you're upset of always paying rent to some landlord, think about the, the you know there are pluses to owning a place. That's that you know definitely there are there are pluses, but look at the negatives too. Being much less mobile if your job takes you to a different <clears throat> place, uh, much less mobile too if you know a relationship takes you to yes. you know wanting to sell whatever condo you're in buy a house, start a family. Uh, so many people I know who bought back in, in Alberta back in 2008, they probably still own their crappy little apartments that they bought back then at an inflated price that they could never sell and they're accidental landlords as, as, a, as a result. They, and just like I, I bought two and I wish I didn't buy back then in 08, but um, we should have all just waited a little while longer, saved up a bit more money, made sure we knew where our careers were taking us and just held off. There's, you don't have to be in a hurry to buy a place. Oh, and then there's one last thing I want to mention too is always deal with a mortgage broker. Don't go into a bank. I used to work at a bank. I was that person at the desk <laughs> who you sat across from to get that mortgage. And let me tell you that it is a negotiation game. Yes. My my compensation at the bank was based on on sales revenue and, and profitability. And that was dependent on how high of an interest rate I could negotiate you to. I'm sounding really evil in what I did, but this is what the banks do. You know, the bank has their posted rate, mm-hmm. whatever. Back then, let's say it was like 6% was the posted rate. And the, then there was a discounted rate. And if I went full discount and discounted 1.4% off that, which I think was the max I could do, I made zero sales revenue. But if I could talk you into doing uh, 1% below the, the posted rate, I got more sales revenue. So that it really is not in your interest. If you go to a mortgage broker, the mortgage broker simply gets paid a commission from all these different lenders who are offering different deals. And those deals are always already at the lowest rate, which is usually as low as or lower than the discounted rate, uh, maximum discounted rate at the bank. And that person's working for you and is finding you a good, a good, uh, a good rate, not negotiating a high rate with you. So stay out of the banks when it comes to getting a mortgage. Go see a good mortgage broker. That broker might end up. There's lots of them out there. Yeah, no, that broker might end up giving you a, a, a lending a product that ends up at one of the banks, but you probably would not have been able to yeah. get that rate if you went directly to that bank. So helps. That's what I did when I yeah. got my house. I, I the bank I, I bank with now is not the bank I ever banked with before, but my mortgage was <laughs> placed with that bank, and it was the best product. It had a lot of good features. Uh, and, and that's another thing, too, you have to realize with the mortgage is not just an interest rate as a feature. There's all sorts of other things, like your ability to pay it off quicker if you ever needed to. Mm-hmm. Every bank's different. Yep. When I was at the Green Bank, when I worked there, uh, I think I might have mentioned before, it was TD is where I worked at. We always were outbid, basically, by BMO on interest rates. So they always had a lower rate product than us. But what we had was much better sort of repayments rules. So like ours were 15% down payments once a calendar year, plus you could up to double your payments, your regular payments, whereas the BMO product, even though it was lower interest rate, and at that time I had a good friend who worked at BMO, so we would always talk about this kind of stuff, but um, that that was a lower interest rate mortgage, but was more restrictive in what you could pay off. It was a a lower amount, Mm -hmm. uh, less often. I don't think you could do both. Mm -hmm. I think you could do maybe either or increasing payments or down payments lump sum down payments. So that's another thing. And, and a good mortgage broker explains it all to you. Let's you know, you know, maybe this product out here is, is a better rate. 
your previous comment about the uh, hold off on purchasing a home, I think is, is particularly apt for, for younger folks. That's a whole episode uh, in and itself in a lot of ways, the rent versus buy situation. But I will I will uh, mirror and I will, uh, you know, mention in support of the comment about the flexibility. Right. Uh, in your 20s, you may start off in your first career. Uh, it, it's your first of everything. It's your it's your first job. And it's not probably going to be your final job. It's your first place of living. It's probably not going to be your final place of living. Your first home is never your forever home. Likewise, to a certain extent, most relationships and things like that are probably not going to your first relationships and pro- rarely your forever relationship, too. And, and, and so when you're when you're buying a home uh, or when you're considering where you're living uh, to put down to lock down roots, uh, which can be positive. But the negative spin on that is that it might unduly affect future decisions related to mobility, particularly related to, say, career uh, optionality, relationships, things of that nature. Should you get a better opportunity in the country, but all of a sudden you got to sell this home? It, it's not easy. It's mm-hmm. not overnight, and it may not be a decision you might want to do. Um, said partner might decide to move to another place or have another opportunity uh, elsewhere. Can you follow uh, in in that footstep as well? All right. Uh, you know, different people. You know, will have different situations. But I think that mobile, that optionality, uh, avail- uh, have that available at a younger age. I think is 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 very important. Or is very valuable. And all of a sudden, you know, locking down on a mortgage on a property uh, in your early twenties, uh, a few years down the road, may not be in hindsight the decision that you should have taken. Right. So, um, so I I will vote treat, in favor. Like yeah, I'll vote in favor of renting initially early on as well until you sort some of that stuff out treat renting like having a t-bill and treat uh buying a house like buying a 10-year bond and you know be in the situation that silicon valley bank is in um that's right yeah if you bought yeah if you bought that home you're probably you just have to know that if you're gonna buy a home see yourself living in it for at least 10 years do not buy it if you don't see yourself living in it for 10 years if that's something you think you're gonna want to sell in five years don't buy it because you might be in a situation as they are in now where home prices have come down in a lot of those, those big markets, and it's really not opportune to be selling that. You know, you'd probably want to sit sit with that property through the next cycle. But yeah, that, yeah. that would be my, my best. Uh, I usually I usually use a rule of thumb five years because that's typically what the term is for most mortgages, right? And and so, but even then, mm-hmm. five years, uh, a lot can happen in five years. That's half a decade. That takes somebody who's fresh out of university in their in their early twenties up until almost to their early thirties. And, and cons- cons- um, presumably, a lot a lot has happened in terms of career, in terms of person, personal life, and, and so on and so forth. Uh, and whereas the home has been fairly static, right? So um, great if you can do that assessment in ten. Uh, try to do it at least in five is the way I would look at it, and then you know base your uh, your your decision on on a purchase or not accordingly. Um, but yeah, um, mm-hmm. you, people will easily commit to uh, to a home much quicker than they may do in other things in their life. And, and it's probably the other way around that they need to do that, that decision-making uh, uh, process. Mm-hmm. Well, excellent. Um, anything uh, else on top of your head these days in, 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 the, in the week that's been? No, you know, I think we're going to, you know, really be tested in terms of our investor behaviors over the next little while again. Um, you know, we had a nice month of January and February was kind of okay. And, uh, you know, th- this is something a lot of, uh, a lot of those smart talking heads have been saying about uh, what they think the markets are going to do. We're going to retest those lows of, of October. And it's kind of hard to think, you know, we've, we've, we've come so far since then, but 
there's always some good reason why they do that and you know this might be the reason here what's what's going on and uh always always think of when you're investing in the markets don't even think 10 years think 20 years uh if you're putting money into the markets one other thing i would say too about uh the technology sector is what we're seeing happening right now is maybe a a sign of that things are not going to get better soon there are people that think you know technology stocks have come down so much the nasdaq is down they're down well over 30 percent again now from their highs you know is this a good time to buy cheap it might be i don't know but uh, last time around 2000 it took a good good number of years until things started to turn around for technology stocks and it took over i think it took 15 years until the nasdaq hit its highs again from previous so and the fact and the reason why that might be what might be a catalyst for that is that now you've got this bank that used to be financing these startups is gone and and there's already you know a dearth of uh of, of fi financing anyways for these companies so it, it's going to take time to mend but there are a lot of great companies out there uh they're just not the they're not, they're not the biggest companies in the index uh they're not the companies that have become so popular over the last 10 years so we need to look beyond that yep or sometimes they're not even in the index so that they don't get thrown out yeah. uh, as with the as the proverbial baby with the bathwater when there's one bad actor and then everything gets sold off associating that's somewhat even associated with it right there there could be opportunities in, in, in that as well like you said so um, you know match match your liability match your expectations your time periods whether it's your long-term uh, retirement account whether it's your home whether it's a relationship whether it's a job I think if you, as long as you try to uh, try to, we try to meaningfully try to match up the timing of that uh, with the expected lifespan uh, of, of said uh, subject then uh, we'll, we'll be probably uh, better off in our decision making uh, in, in all of them Okay. We'll leave it at that. And uh, yes, so have a great weekend. I'll make a note for our listeners too. Uh, we're, we're trying different things with the audio. Um, so what we're doing now, hopefully the audio is a bit better from Justin's side. He's always been using his, his iPhone with uh, some, some AirPods for recording. We're now using a proper mic there and uh, recording this separately and using a better audio uh, editing program. So hopefully uh, you noticed a change over the last couple of weeks. Uh, let us know, of course, uh, you know, if uh, if you still have any comments or complaints. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, Marcus. Have a great weekend. Any views discussed in this podcast are those of the presenters or any guests and not necessarily those of Canaccord Genuity Corp. Statements expressed herein are not intended to provide tax, legal, or financial advice and under no circumstances should be construed as a solicitation to act as a securities broker or dealer in any jurisdiction. All views expressed are intended for general circulation only and do not have any regard to the specific investment objectives, financial circumstances, or general need of any individual organization or institution. Investing in equities is not guaranteed, values change frequently, and past performance is not an indicator of future performance. Investors cannot invest directly in an index. Index returns do not reflect fees, expenses, or sales charges. Please do not hesitate to contact us should you want to know more about anything discussed in this podcast. CG Wealth Management is a division of Canaccord Genuity Corp., member of the Canadian Investor Protection Fund and Investor Investment Industry Regulatory Organization of Canada.